0: So before we start if you could say your first and last name to make sure i pronounce it right and give your pronouns if you'd like to give pronouns that'd be great.
1: I'm Tamzin Rosewell uh she, her
0: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Shelf Healing, UCL's bibliotherapy podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Markwick. Our guest today is Tamsin Rosewell. Tamsin is an artist, historian, broadcaster, and bookseller. After 11 years working in Parliament as a researcher and for the British government on Whitehall, she moved to the city to work in the regulated financial services industry on analysis and corporate communications. After a few years in Brussels, she returned to England to join the team at English Heritage, then part of the DCMS. While retaining her interest in economics and public policy, Tamson now works for 55-year-old independent bookshop at Kenilworth Books, where she has been a bookseller for nearly 15 years. Tamsin also lectures freelance on the history of ghost lore, the history of perfume, the history of chocolate, she trained as a chocolatier whilst living in Belgium, I feel like that's like the best thing to do ever, and on Elizabethan horticulture. She paints and exhibits her work which has been used for album cover designs, posters, and music videos, as well as published illustrations. Uh, so the first question to get us started, Tamsin, is nice and easy do you feel that reading is therapeutic? I don't do think that's a particularly easy question. I
1: was the kid who was dyslexic and struggled to read at school. And it was books were a real stress for me. I don't think I actually read for pleasure until I was in my 20s. I do remember the first book. That I picked off the shelf and chose for myself, and that was The Worst Witch by um, Jill Murphy. Um, I remember that vividly, and I was about eight. I think I struggled to read it, but I did read it, and I remember enjoying, I think I probably enjoyed the illustrations, you know, that's my memory of it. Um, but I don't think I really read, I th- the first book I remember reading, and you know, kind of really just getting lost in was probably Northern Lights. So I must have been about 25 at that point and I'm 48 now. So just to give you some idea, I I really didn't find, you know, any, any sense of pleasure in reading as a child and as a teenager. I really came to it much, much later. Um, I think left my own devices, I'm probably more of a non-fiction reader and the overriding sense I get with reading is about interest and um, it's about kind of gaining an energy and information and about... Um, It's not for me about just relaxing. I really passionately want to know what that author's got to say. I want to be in their world. I want to, you know, I want to support them. You know, I'm a bookseller. So often, very, very often, I'm reading a book to decide how can I best support this book? Is this a window display book? Is this, am I going to invite the author to come and join us? You know, do I go all out on social media and, and push this book? And, you know, if I love a book, I will do everything I can to support them. So it's not... You know, I very, very often don't read just to kind of chill. It, that's not uh, that's not particularly familiar to me. Um, is it therapeutic? I just, I don't know the answer to that. I just I find it all kinds of things. Uh, I I'd, I'd say energizing. I think energizing for me is a better word than therapeutic. I don't find it. Um, I don't find it relaxing <laughs> at all. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad
0: thing. So, what kind of nonfiction books do you go for then? Are you are you sort of like history? Um, well. Yeah definitely history I'm a historian by background I studied
1: I wanted to study fine art um when I left school but um in the 1980s and 90s you couldn't get a grant to study fine art or illustration. There's no way my parents could have afforded it. I, I managed to work my way through doing a foundation course in fine art, which at the time you had to have to get your portfolio. And then it just became obvious that this wasn't going to happen. So I went and studied constitutional history instead. obviously, what else would you do? Um, and then from there, you know, was actually sent into government. So I ended up in the cabinet office um, from university, didn't complete my degree, kind of went straight into government were sent in there um, by Peter Hennessy. Uh, As a historian by background, uh, yeah, I still gravitate towards history. And then those hybrid sort of narrative nonfiction, a lot of what Catherine Johnson writes, for example, really well-researched historical fiction i thought cecily um annie garthwaite's novel cecily was just stunning i thought it was one of the most one of the best pieces of writing i've read probably in the last decade uh really remarkable piece of work um yeah i still gravitate towards those in in non-fiction i think if you're dyslexic you know or struggle to read or don't have that confidence as a child often it's the non-fiction books which are displayed better they're broken up in More reader-friendly ways. You get little paragraphs which are illustrated. You get sections which are clearly defined. You don't get that in a novel. In a novel, in your you know, handed Jane Eyre at eleven and expected to enjoy it, whether you like it or not. Um, And it's terrifying, you know, if you're if you don't have that confidence. Um, And I think I kind of was drawn into nonfiction and things like short stories, ghost stories. I've always loved ghost stories. Uh, William Blake has always been a passion of mine because there was never a pressure to understand it. That whole comprehension aspect was just not there you just enjoyed it you just kind of let it kind of you just wallowed in it um so yeah that kind of non-fiction image non-fiction books about art about artists all of that yeah
0: lovely I think you're right I think non-fiction has a lot more pictures in I've only just sort of thought just how many non-fiction books when you read them they have beautiful illustrations just all over the place how wonderful that is they do I, I think
1: actually we do non-fiction down as an industry we don't allow it its space to be what it is in its own right the, the way we talk about non-fiction whether it's biography or whether it's history or political thinking um is to somehow compare it to the novel so you often read reviews which say things like you know It's so good. It reads like a novel, as if what it really ought to be aspiring to is being a novel. And it's not. It's nonfiction. It's something completely different. Um, And even I I noticed I judged a a school book scheme uh, much earlier this year and... Even there, there's this emphasis, this overemphasis on fiction in our education system that meant the only nonfiction books that were even being considered were narrative nonfiction. They were pretending to be fiction as it was like, that, that's that's too coarse, but, you know, that they were, you know, books that were presenting as fiction when actually it was nonfiction. Why can we not allow non-fiction to be non and we define it we call it non-fiction we define it by it's why it's not we don't call you know novels non-fact books do we we you know we we've kind of defined it in this really strange way and I think that for me that really needs rethinking and and it's a huge selling area you know as a bookseller I know how much you know our history and biography uh children's history certainly children's science dinosaurs um yeah, absolutely, really, no, but you're right, from a really young age, from you know, the age of three right up to um you know adult nonfiction, you know, something like interest in dinosaurs and that ancient prehistory that we've got that's that weird combination of geography um and human science is you know, I mean, Alice Roberts is, you know, writing on this and, and you know, it, there's so much interest in it. So and yet we kind of do it down by, you know, tell, implying that it, these people really ought to be aspiring to be fiction writers if they had any grace.
0: Mm. Now I'm with you on that. More nonfiction. Nonfiction should mm. be more places. Um, is there a specific time or a place that you read? Obviously, you're a bookseller, so reading can sometimes be work. It. Uh, uh, yes
1: Um, in some of my it's always worked for me but that makes it sound really dull that makes it sound really harsh it makes it sound like oh god I've got to read a book now it's not like that at all because (laughs) I love my job I think people do assume they have this Everybody assumes that when you work in a bookshop, we all just sit around reading all day. That's what we do. And it's, I couldn't be further from the truth. You have to be fairly physically strong to be a bookseller. I mean, lumping books around, you know, car, entire car loads of books to and from festivals and schools is very much part of the job. Um, you know, we really do. It's manic. We don't get to, and you have to flit between jobs. We all do everything. And that involves everything from cleaning, through to booking stock in checking stock um and then you know delivering lectures to um students to working in schools to dealing with customer we all do everything and it's always like that and there is there are days when we just don't even have time for a cup of tea let alone you know lunch it's not that we certainly don't have time to sit and read not actual books we read buyer's notes quite a lot and the gumph that publishers send us oh I wish they'd stop
0: I enjoy those I enjoy those when they send you like two the double-sided A4 piece of paper all about this new book and you're like thanks for that thanks for that yes <laughs> I just needed that one tiny paragraph so I didn't need it anymore um but so when
1: I do get home I tend to read in the evening you know before bed um because of my illness, I actually go to bed really really early so my body really needs to be resting from about half past six in the evening so and reading's perfect for that. I will often, and I get really excited about, oh great, I can actually just go and focus on this book. And I'm a slow reader and I make no apology for that. I think we do, We, we I hear people say, oh, I whipped through it in one evening. And I'm thinking you really can't have read it properly if you read that in one sitting. I'm sorry, honey, but you know, you must at least have needed a loop break in there. Um, and I think, I don't know if if an author's put, and I know how much work authors put into those books, often it's years, sometimes decades. In the case of Cecily, I think, you know, Annie Garfield seems to have been writing that since she was in her teens, you know, and, you know, so I I want to give it time. And if I enjoy a writer's language, I think about language a lot. Um, I think about the choice of words, the setting, you know, even their own little illuminations in the illustrations that have gone inside that book. I want to give that time. I think I owe them that. You know, if I read it really quickly and miss half the references in it, you know, maybe miss the nuance, miss the subtlety, miss those particular choices of words that they've agonized over, I don't think I do them any service. I want to give them that time and I I, I make no apology for reading slowly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I read quite fast, but when I'm reading something but for pleasure, I will always slow down to read it. If I'm reading something for a university course or for work, you know, I will I will blast through it as quickly as I can in order to make sure I get everything and I'll go back to anything that seemed particularly important. But whenever I'm reading for pleasure, I always sit there and I'm like, I can take my time with this now. I can really savour the experience, uh, which I really enjoy. I think there's a pain in that as well. I know what you mean. I think there's a pain in that as well because I was reading... Um
1: I've just finished Shadow Gass, Thomas Taylor Shadow Gass, the third in the Aerion Sea trilogy. And I kind of found myself, this the last third of the book, just reading slower and slower. It's like, because I just didn't want to leave Aerion Sea. And I'm, there's part of my brain that's thinking, oh, no, what am I going to do? You know, when this is finished, there's not going to be another one out for like a year. I, you know, I, I can't read it faster. So, you know, I think there's that aspect as well. If you're really in, involved in a book, if you're enjoying it, it, you know, and thinking about what the author's done, you kind of don't want to leave. Um, yeah, I, but I think we we don't talk enough about rereading. Um, That's we, my we, next question. Oh, go on then, you ask your next <laughs>
0: question. Are there any works that you return to over and over again, like A Comfort Food but in book form?
1: Absolutely. Um in, during the first part of the pandemic, I went, and my mum did as well, actually, a lot of people I know went back to a certain type of book that to them is their comfort blanket, Is the, it's familiar, it was such an unfamiliar landscape at that moment that... You know, I actually, this sounds really odd, but I went back to, you know, M.R. James, Sheridan Lefanu those, you know, ghost stories, gothic novels that I've always loved and felt are very much part of me. Um, it sounds really odd thing to do, to read, you know, horror stories at that moment, but that's what I did. My mum went back to her Georgette Heyer. I think all of us had something different that we turned back to at that moment. I have noticed though, and um, in when we were in, when I work in schools, and with libraries and with parents, that we almost actively discourage children from rereading. And I think that's a mistake. I think, you know, parents will say, oh, you know, he really loved Boy Everywhere and he's now read it four times and I just want him to move on. It's like, no, let him read it again. What's the problem? It's a great, great book. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I think, you know, I noticed that, you know, how many times have I read Omar James's? collected works at least 50 or 60 times I'd imagine it's one of those books that you know I read a couple of times a year um and I, yeah I still find there's things I hadn't kind of quite noticed in it before things that I appreciate over and over again things you know i start thinking oh, I've read this so many times so I really want to read this again then I read it again I realize how much of it I hadn't uh, you know I had forgotten um I think rereading is A really powerful thing. And I think, you know, that's when you can start to really appreciate an author's use of language and structure and tone and character um, and really learn from it. I think we need to encourage that in children and adults, of course, um,
0: and not discourage it. Definitely. I'm all for the reread. I have a set of books that I try and reread every year and if not every other year.
1: Do you know, do you know It worries me that I've got this list of books that I reread every year and it's getting longer <laughs> each past year. So logically there's going to come a point when actually I only ever read the same books over and over again. I'm yeah. sure that won't actually happen, but it's a kind of
0: fear yeah. that I have. I've started actually getting the audio book versions of some of those books that I love rereading uh, because I do a lot of driving. And they're great. I often li- I've, I listen to loads of podcasts, but I go through phases where I'm like really into my non-fiction podcasts again. And um more non-fiction. And then I go like I'm bored of podcasts now. I want to listen to a sto- like listen to a story. And those books that I reread I'll listen to in the car. And it makes me really look forward to driving because you know, I'm reading the story without actually reading. But I'm very picky about my um narrators. So if there's multiple versions of an audiobook I go through and I like test them out to see which one I like the best. There's <laughs> nothing worse than like a narrator that you just don't like for a story that you love.
1: It doesn't right. No, no.
0: No. No,
1: no, that's actually right and I think I uh, audiobooks is kind of passed me by as a bookseller. It's just part of the market we don't see. Um Audible has you know really taken that corner of the market. Um, I use Kobo. <laughs> do you? I, do, do you know, I, I do. don't even well, we don't sell well, we did sell audiobooks. A lot of people wanted them on, you know, mainly CD, but they're very, mm. very high priced. They are. There's only a select, you know, not everything is on there by a very long way. Not many are produced on CD at all, particularly children's books. Um, you know, they're much lower cost. Yeah, you know, the difference between you know, buying a novel, which on audio, on CD, would cost you 15, 20 quid. And on download, it's cost a few pounds. Uh, you can't, it's just, we, it's just part of the market that's wiggled away from us. Um mm. I mean, other parts of the market have come flying at us. So I have no complaint. <laughs> but I just, I don't really know it very well. I don't know the nuance mm. of that part of the
0: market. I, I find it very good for rereads because you know the story. So if... Yeah you know, you, you can look forward to bits, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I just find it quite good fun, especially if you know, like a funny lines coming up because you can kind of do it along with the person who's reading. Maybe I'm just slightly crazy. I feel like I'm slightly crazy there. Um, anyway, next question. What drew you away from all of your government work into bookselling? A very good question. Um, basically
1: I began, I got acute osteoarthritis, which, manifest itself really after my son was born so I was in my early 30s um, when you know I had proper degeneration in my bone Um, and I was in Belgium at that time within a year of him being born I you know had acute pain and was struggling to walk and I, we, you know, I kind of managed, I think particularly women just get on with it. I think, so I'm not doing down the men at all. I, that's, you know, I I can't know the male experience of this, but, you know, I think as a woman and as a mother, you do tend to just get on with it. You do what is necessary. You find ways to do things. And, you know, I, I wanted to work. I'd had a long period of time off when William was born. Um, and I kind of wanted that sense of purpose, to do something I wanted to be earning my own money I wanted to have my own space Um, I think that's really important Um, you know particularly for women particularly for young women so I went to work at English Heritage at Kenilworth Castle um, as a historian working out on site I was delivering lectures and again it was one of those environments where we all do everything you know we you have to be able to work in the tea room and work in the shop and you also you know I was also then Delivering lectures to groups of visiting professors from Canada, we had these extraordinary days that were everything. You know, if you, we had people arriving who you know would say, "Well, I didn't do my degree or my masters in history to work in a tea room." And you say, "Listen, honey, you know, if you want to work in heritage management, you need to know where the money comes in because it costs a million pounds a year just to do the basic upkeep on the castle." The money comes in the shop and the tea room. As long as granny can visit and have a wee and a cup of tea, everything is completely fine and you need to know where that money comes in. So we all did everything and that was great. But I was physically really not coping on site. I'd get back and my body would just not recover from my days there. I you know, had real problems with my back. Um, I actually dislocated my ankle several times. Once I tripped over a badger, yes really, in the middle of the night and the second time I jumped down an archaeological hole to examine a piece of possibly Anglo-Saxon pot Nice (laughs) There we go, those are my um, amusing injuries So it became quite obvious to me that I wasn't going to be able to do that I'd already done stuff with the bookshop I had done evening talks for them on various things and uh, a vacancy became available and they asked me to join them Um, So, yeah, it was my illness there. But do you know what? There's loads of things that I would never have done if I didn't have to struggle with osteoarthritis. I'd never have ended up working in the bookshop. I'd probably still be working for English Heritage or in government in some other way. And that's a really important part of my life now. I'd also never have broadcast. um, You know, I'd never have started working on radio documentaries if I hadn't had to have periods of time when I just had to be at home and recover. I deliberately chose that because I wanted to do something that I could do from home. And both of those have been just formative in who I am now, what I am, what I'm interested in, the people I know how I think how I support people all of those things have come out of that so in a very weird way I think of that as a positive change in myself I know that sounds odd to think of a growing disability a degenerative disease as a positive thing in yourself but I really really do
0: yeah well it's it's lovely when things work out and you discover new things that you love and no one can talk to you and Kenilworth Books without mentioning their beautiful window displays <laughs> we have a lot of fun with our windows yeah so how do they come about because i wouldn't even know where to start because i see them posted up on twitter and i just sit there marveling at their glory
1: okay so um i don't know where to start on this. One. first and foremost i've got to have the right book um and this is a more complex thing than it might appear at first because there are certain types of books that work really well in the window and some that I would support with all my strength and with great passion, but I would never put them in a window display because they wouldn't work. So books that are – because the sun hits the windows full on, so you get a massive glare back um, in our particular position. So books that are foiled, books that are brightly coloured, have certain types of designs on them – you know, books with those bold colouring like Cecily with those beautiful pinks and, and oranges, um, they all look amazing in the window. So often children's books work particularly well in the window. Books that are matte or, you know, elegant shades of grey and black just disappear. You actually literally cannot see them. So the best example I can give you is that amazing book called Thornhill by Pam Smythe that David Fickling published. Um it's an amazing book and I really appreciate that book as a piece of publishing. I love selling it. It's never not on our shelves, but I would never put that in the window. You, could, you Literally, you would walk past and not notice it. There is no point in me putting that in the window. So I have to choose the right book for a start. I will look at it, but I need to physically see a book. There's no point in a publisher saying to me, oh, well, we got this book and it's this. You know, I have to actually see what it looks like. Um, the second thing is it's got to have a strong theme to it. So publishers will often contact me and say, "Oh, you know, we thought you might like to consider this for your window display." And I say, "What's it about?" And they'll go, "Well, it's kind of one of those books that's about that transitional period, you know, when you're thinking about moving." And you think, "Oh my God, give me a dragon! I've, how do I do that You know, <laughs> give me a dragon or a theatre or you know, a ghost or something. You know, I, I can't do that as I can't you know express the nuance easily." you know, with a thematic window. Um, So it's got to have that strong thing. So often you'll notice things like, you know, we did Cecily recently with that extraordinary stained glass and the colour and the power of that, you know, which matched our own castle, worked really well. Um, I've just put um, Freeze by Chris Priestley in there for Barrington Stoke, um, which is kind of creepy white on white kind of ice and it's got foils on the front, so it also sparkles. Uh, Little Glow from Owlet Press, wonderful Owlet Press, who never fails to produce something amazing, um, You know, which is about light festivals from all over the world. Again, perfect theme for a window display. I use chalk... On the glass, I don't advise using acrylic. People often talk about using acrylic paint on glass. The problem with acrylic is, in modern commercial glass, you've got a, a plastic filter on on the glass itself, which stops it shattering if the window breaks. That will stain if you put acrylic on it, or it can stain unless you really know your glass or you own the building and you don't <laughs> mind. Um, I would always advise chalk because it literally wipes off. But I'll use foils and things on the outside of the window to catch the light. Uh, there's nothing I won't do. That. I've used edible glitter on the window, which is basically sugar. I didn't want to use glitter because I don't like the environmental damage that it causes. Uh, but edible glitter is sugar and it dissolves. Um, and it actually works really well if you get it wet and then you put it onto glass. I know that's unconventional, but I like being unorthodox. So <laughs> oh, and there's nothing I won't do in a window display. I often think, you know, I really do plan the design. Um, do you know what? I, 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 always marvel at the number of bookshops that create displays that then completely hide the books and the windows that they're supposed to be displaying and I think you've blocked out you've got a great painting there but you've blocked out the image of the actual book what are you doing yeah it's that <laughs> the job of the windows is to bring people into the shop and whether that's online by them seeing images or bring them to the book more accurate to bring them to the book so a lot of people if you look down those threads a lot of people are saying oh I haven't read this book you know is this new from Chris Priestley or how much is that book um you know and where can I get it And I don't really mind where they buy it from. I think, you know, my my job is to drive people to that book. That's what I'm interested in doing because I think that's the right book. Um, So that's the window space job. And whether that's through photographs, mainly it's through photographs, actually. We're sharing them across social media. It's not really only for the people who happen to walk past. Um, Not many authors actually see their own window displays. Not very many at all. So it's actually just about, it's more about, I want to create a series of photographs that the author, the publicist, the publisher, you know, all their marketing support can use more widely. And they do. They really do. I've seen those photographs circulating often for years after um, I've created long, long, long after the window display has gone.
0: It's fabulous. And you are rather known locally for drawing little hedgehogs on your book post. We <laughs> yeah, yes. can't um, not mention the little hedgehogs. The little hedgehogs. You know, somebody <laughs> proposed
1: to me the other day that I set up a new Twitter or Instagram account called Parcel Hogs and just yes! take photographs of all of the little parcel <laughs> hogs that I draw. I can't yes. remember why I started doing it. I think I started drawing them in the bookshop just as a little joke. So I'd leave Judy, who actually owns the bookshop, um, who's my business partner, you know, I'd leave her a little note you know, if I was leaving for the day saying, you know, oh, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, wants this copy, you know, keep this aside for her. She's coming first thing or something. And I would just draw a little hedgehog at the bottom, you know, and with a note or something. And I came in one day after I'd left a hedgehog note and she'd taken one of my drawings and made it into a sticker. I was- <laughs> <laughs> You just and decided that this hedgehog was going to become a sticker and it went down really well. Everybody really loves the hedgehogs. So I just kept drawing hedgehogs. Um, I can't really explain it any better
0: than that. Though. I am fully behind a Twitter account called Parcel Hogs. That's just about all of your parcel hedgehogs. I think, I think perhaps it needs to happen. Yeah. Um, so you're doing more illustration now. Do you find illustration to be therapeutic? I don't know yet is the answer to that I've really I've
1: always painted I've always been an artist since I was really small my mum talks about how when I was two she would sit me at the kitchen table with piles of paper and pencils and and I would sit for hours and hours and hours just drawing and coloring and generally creating nothing in particular And I still do that. It's very much a natural state for me. But I was forced away from it by not being able to study um, and always felt that it was therefore not something I could go back to. I've kind of gone back to it at various points in my life. And then I've had to abandon it. I had to have both my shoulder joints reconstructed. One was done about two years ago and the other, the right one was done earlier this year. And particularly the left one, I'm very left-handed It actually meant that all the stuff I was painting at the time, I literally just abandoned for years because I I couldn't pick up. I didn't have the motor control to do it. And I'm only just really getting that back now. Um, So I never thought about all my art as the least bit connected to my work as a bookseller. And it took an author to point it out to me. So I was working with Dr. Heather Martin and we were doing Lee Child's biography, The Reacher Guy and this was in the middle of the pandemic and we realized that we weren't going to get him over here and we weren't going to have our event and we didn't gonna get so we weren't going to get signed books and all of this and she phoned one morning and she said oh, I've had this idea you can paint like a really beautiful print that we'll use as a book plate and it'll be more than just a book plate um, and we'll give them out and we'll make it really exclusive and it'll be fantastic I said I can't do that you know she said oh you can paint it on themes you can paint like the skyline of Coventry and I'll tell you all the things that you can tangle into the flowers around the edge and I said like, I, I can't do that and she can't I can't you know I'm not I'm not an illustrator and she said well yes you are you paint all those window displays and I really did have one of those moments where I thought oh yeah I <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was like a kind of proper slap in the face is like wake up wake up. and I did realize I was it kind of lights on moment for me so thank you Heather um and I thought oh my god I, I am I can do this I do paint in relation to the books of course i do of course i do and it kind of went from there and then you know it became obvious to me more recently that i'm not i mean i'm not i'm not going to recover i'm not going to get better and i'm going to need to shift my career you know what i do with myself and i think you know i've got to give it a try you know do i stand a chance of being a professional illustrator and actually making my living that way i don't know but i'm going to give it a go i kind of have to
0: excellent I look forward to it. I love your dis- your windows are just beautiful. Anyone that hasn't seen the windows, we're going to put links in the show notes to Tamsin's Twitter and the Kenilworth Books' Twitter and the websites and everything so you can go and hunt out all of the beautiful window displays. Um, final question. Yep. This is going to be hard and horrible and you're going to That's hate me okay. for it. If you could recommend one book to people that you think will make a positive impact on them, what book would it be? It could be anything. Oh, okay. Um, Oh, no, that's a horrible (laughs) question. (laughs) Uh,
1: Okay, Um, just one book that's going to make an impact on them. I am going to go back to the seed of my soul, and I'm going to say find yourself a copy of Songs of Innocence and of Experience by William Blake. It's the ultimate in an illustrated book. It's, I think, the first time that we really saw books that where you cannot separate the illustration from the words without diminishing it. The illustrations give you a different... Viewed in the story, so the tiger, everybody knows Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, which is one of the songs in, in that little book. Um, it's this extraordinary, powerful creature that is described, that's godlike, it's mysterious, it's supernatural. And yet the image that Blake has created under that is this very approachable kind of little pussycat thing under it, and it really makes you wonder how much of that tiger he wanted you to understand and how much he wanted to challenge you about your own understanding of it. So I, I think it's just a beautiful object and it's again, another, it's an ultimate in having a book as a physically beautiful object is a beautiful piece of publishing. It was when he created it and it is still now the Tate still publish Um Blake's many of Blake's books but you know this one in particular um and it's very much has the same feel of you know what what perhaps it would have felt you know to, to look and to hold it at the time I like the mystery of Blake the fact that one Blake scholar when I was making a radio series about him I was worried that I'm not a Blake scholar and I didn't know enough to do this you know was I really the right person to do this and this um, academic said to me he said look anyone who actually claims to understand Blake almost by definition doesn't the whole you've missed the point if you're trying to understand you have missed the point you know what it's about is the permission to create entire worlds and mythologies the permission to be unorthodox the permission to dissent um you know the power that images can have the power that words can have um the power to create its all of those things. Um, and it's a tiny little book. You could literally put it in your pocket and, um, have it with you all the time. I think I'm going to have to pick out Blake if you're going
0: to force me to choose one. And what a pick. Like, I I'm it. thoroughly behind that pick. It's it's a really beautiful book. Everyone who's listening, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Um I always think when he's talking the tiger tiger, I always think he just has a really good cat. And he's like yeah, and it, he had a really, had really, a really cool, cool cat, cat yeah. and he's like this is what the cat thinks it is. And then you look at it. <laughs> Out
1: about whether Blake has actually ever seen a tiger, <laughs> an actual real tiger. It's it's perfectly possible because at the time in London, there's a book called um, Oh Penny Crimes. Um, oh, what's it called about a tiger? Um, tiger Heart, um, which is set during this period in London when there were these great menageries in London. They were for wealthy people to go and buy exotic mm. pets, and there were tigers in these menageries they were in London um you know but apparently there were things like giraffes were walked through the streets of London and taken to these menageries and people thought they were invented people didn't believe what they were seeing when they actually saw these creatures they must have looked you know they're familiar to us now because we got photographs and videos and images but you know I don't know It's, it's perfectly possible that Blake actually saw a tiger it's not unreasonable that he would have done but I don't know there's not really any
0: written evidence that he did so he could just have been his cat uh, I don't know <laughs> a really epic cat oh yeah. I'd love that well thank you so much for coming on Tamsin we'll pop links to everything you've you've mentioned all of your stuff in in the show notes and all of the authors I will list them all out in all of the books as well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me thank you very much it's been lovely to chat. A wonderful episode there with the lovely bookseller and illustrator Tamsin. The Instagram account Parcel Hogs does exist now and I'm going to try and link it in the show notes for everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this. Do check out Kenilworth Books on Twitter and Tamsin's account. It's absolutely lovely and you'd be amazed at what Tamsin can do with window displays. Thanks as always to Nicholas Patrick for our music. Please check us out on Twitter at Shelf underscore healing. Share us with all your friends and we'll be back soon with another episode of Shelf Healing.